Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, March the 14th, 2023. Regular viewers, listeners to the show know we've done a lot of stuff on the so-called American dream. Uh, for some, the American dream is a kind of liberation. We did a show with Michael Saman, a young Peruvian immigrant who saw the experience of being in America and making himself a tech, successful tech entrepreneur. He wrote about it in App Kid, um, about seizing or grabbing a piece of the American dream as a kind of liberation for him. Others agree, I think, with Saman. Uh, we had the Republican politician, Rick Keller, who believes that uh, the American dream requires a degree of humor and ability to cry. He's a Republican, an old-fashioned. Uh, I'm not sure he's a great fan of Donald Trump, uh, perhaps representing the traditional Republican notion of what the American dream is. For others, the issue of the American dream has been open to interpretation. A couple of years ago, we did a show with a photographer, Ian Brown, who had a book out or has a book out on what exactly people think of the American dream. Uh, one, uh, one of the people he featured in the book uh, suggests, my American dream is to own a beautiful luxury house. One wonders whether that dream has been realized. Uh, but there are, of course, critics of the American dream, many of them immigrants themselves. Erica Sanchez was on the show last year talking about uh, being a 21st century American as an immigrant means in a, in a way rebelling against the American dream. And Javier Zamora, who walked from El Salvador to California in his, and features this in his best-selling book, um, Solito, uh, suggests that the dream is a rotten one and, and others go even further, some uh, really rather vulgarly. Uh, Dale Maharidge, uh, one of America's uh, most articulate and outspoken journalists, uh, had a new book out last year, Fucked at Birth, Recalibrating the American Dream for the 2020s. Even Maharidge, though, believes in the idea, I guess, of the dream. My guest today, I think, has given up the idea of the dream. And rather than thinking of the dream as a form of liberation, she seems to believe that... Um, the best way to liberate ourselves, so to speak, is to liberate ourselves from the American dream. That, at least, is what she argues in her new book, Bootstrapped. Uh, Alyssa Court is a Brooklyn-based journalist, uh, and uh, Bootstrapped is out today. Congratulations, um, Alyssa. Is this an achievement of the American dream? Did you bootstrap the book? Um, probably. And some of my interest in this was obviously came from personal experience, from a sense of myself as somebody who had to achieve and accomplish to be worthy of love, to be worthy of being an American. And part of what I wanted to do with this was investigate the origins of the, the sense of ourselves that we have to be driven, that we have to uh, survive economically, thrive economically or we're not of value. And that there's an earlier American dream that we should return to. So when it was coined in 1931, it was a much more capacious uh, idea. And 
it was more community oriented. And like a lot of ideas, including others I investigate in this book, the Horatio Alger story, the idea of pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, they started out meaning something quite different than they came to mean later. So there was kind of a folk psychology that took hold and turned the American dream into something that had not been there at its inception. I wonder what Freud would make of the term, the American dream. Who, who invented it, Alyssa? It's uh, James Truslow Adams. Sometimes I invert his name. So it's Adams Truslow. I think it's James Truslow Adams. And he was a, a social thinker in the early 20th century. And uh, he, he actually was very aware about the economic limitations in this country and uh, for a lot of people and how... Uh, people didn't always have a fair shake. And so what's interesting to me is how that part of it has come to be forgotten, like, like with, as in with many of these words, many of these idioms. How much of this is bound up in what we now call a, a, a neoliberal philosophy uh, or the neoliberal economics of hostility to the state and a fetishization of the market? I mean, were men like... Emerson, um, who I know you write about in the book, or, or Horatio Alger, were they fetishizing the market and suggesting that through the market people could realize this American dream? Yeah, I mean, Emerson, I would say, is more complicated. His version of self-reliance, uh, he wrote a book called uh, Self-Reliance. Obviously, his dear friend, Henry David Thoreau, wrote Walden um, that was also about, you know, man living on his own, supposedly, which he didn't actually, uh, at Walden Pond. Um, yeah, he got his mother to do his work. got his mother. Right? He had lots of social life uh, that would make anyone, you know, during the pandemic lockdown super jealous. Like there was, he, he even has a line, there's, there's stools for company. So this was during his writing of uh, Walden. But um, I think their idea of self-reliance what it was about nonconformity as well as like standing on your own two feet. Like it was about being a true individual, right? As well as a market, a marketplace individual. Whereas, yeah, Horatio Alger was very much about rising in the ranks. Uh, he wrote 128 dreadful novels and they were almost all about like Ragged Dick was one character who, there's the name of a book, who made his way up and, you know, met, met all kinds of usually older men who were quite wealthy, who helped him in his rise in the ranks. Sometimes he married their daughters. Sometimes he just charmed them. Uh, Tony the Tramp, that was another one of his books. But Horatio Alger's story, the point being in my book, that that even, he had the help of this um, class of aristocratic men that were, took a fancy to him. So he even, even the Horatio Alger story isn't this pure uh, American dream of self-realization uh, without any help. Has the Horatio Alger story, as you call it, has it metastasized into all these business books about how to improve oneself, to realize oneself, to be competitive in the market, to brand oneself? I've done many shows. I won't mention all the authors. Uh, I don't want to get myself into trouble. But it, it seems as if they're all barking up the same Horatio Alger street. Speaking of barking, I know uh, you liberated yourself of the dog. So, yeah, my my dog, who um, yeah is clearly an individualist, uh, kept barking. Um, yeah, I mean, if you look at some of the language, uh, and there's a whole culture of this. They call it grind set, as in mindset, but grind, like working hard, or um, side hustle. There's a commercial website called Side Hustle Nation um, that 
definitely took this Horatio Alger story, or at least the misunderstanding, as I said, again, all the characters in his novels, almost all of them were helped by older men. So they weren't necessarily rising and grinding. But today we have, you know, people with t-shirts that have slogans like nine to five is for the week, or you can't make excuses and money, which is it going to be? And it's filled with this kind of, you know, you can do it, go girl, go guy. Uh, but it's pretty pitiless. Like it's not, uh, if you hu hustle and it doesn't work, oh, you've hustled wrong. And if you're not hustling, then that's why things haven't worked out for you. That's kind of the, the, uh, deep structure of some of this, these sentences. And what these... was the, the view of government, of, of the authorities in this? Uh, one of the stories I'm sure you've been following is the collapse out here of Silicon Valley Bank. Yeah. What you call the side hustle, the, the cult of the, the self-made entrepreneur was fine until the bank collapsed. And then everyone wanted the bank to bail out its depositors because they claimed to be innocent. Um, did the Emersons and the Algers and, and other people you feature in the book, like Ayn Rand, did they, did they have any role for the government, for the state, as a, as a, as a platform or an arbitrator of this dream? I think or an Emerson, enabler of the dream? Yeah, I think Emerson and Thoreau were definitely, I mean, they were um, uh, abolitionists, or at least Thoreau was. Um, they were really interested in freeing themselves from certain kinds of organized religion and dogma. And yeah, they were they were still interested in democracy, um, but no, I mean, I, I think the at least the seed of what Horatio Alger was, and definitely Anne Rand, uh, had a very anti-institutional, anti-government orientation. Even though, as I point out about Anne Rand, she was on Social Security and Medicare at the end of her life, something that her often techno-philic uh, followers kind of try to explain away like, oh, but that's something you pay into. Like, which is another thing that you see a lot in the society of the self-made or this new American, this sort of bad American dream where uh, they make special pleading for themselves. Um, I call that rich fictions. It's the thing that wealthy or, or aspiring, <laughs> aspiring wealthy folks do to try to justify the advantages they have uh, and try to explain why they're deserving, they're deserving of a bailout and ordinary citizens are not deserving of say having their student loans uh, debt forgiven, right? So there's two systems, there's the undeserving poor and then there's the deserving rich and they're sort of working in parallel. Um, your book is, is out today, it's already got some nice reviews. There was an excellent feature uh, on it in the Atlantic by Emmy Neatfield describing uh, the American dream as America's most insidious myth. Is it a completely a myth? I mean, some people, um, Alyssa, would say, well, I realize the American dream. I don't know about you. I mean, it's true for some people, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it. again, there are all the, there's these findings, like I wrote a book called Hot House Kids that was about sort of so-called prodigies and gifted kids. And one of the famous findings when it takes 10,000 hours to get mastery in a domain. And I, I, I've seen that in my own life. I see that in the lives of other people who have uh, strong skill sets. Um, you, hard work usually does create kind of mastery. My child is a, a competitive rock climber. This is her passion. She's 12 years old. She's probably racking up those hours right now, right? Um, and so I don't mean to deny hard work or the importance of having a passion or drive. And I do think that's fundamental for success. 
what I'm what I'm critiquing is the lack of support along the way and the shaming for those who haven't managed to make it, which you know I I, I noted because I run a poverty nonprofit, so I, I get these emails and comments, you know, why did the the person that you that we give grants, why did the person you give a grant to have a kid with two different guys, or why did she go to college, or why didn't she go to college? And there's a lot of blame and shame around these stories, and so. Yeah, it's not to deny the role of drive and skill, but it's to deny, it's try to try to critique the way that we blame those who somehow don't manage to float to the top. Uh, Alyssa, some people might be watching this and thinking she's just trying to turn America into Denmark. We've always had Denmark as <laughs> oh, a kind God of forbid. Yeah. joke <laughs> in this show. Um, but you remember that incident when uh, in the primaries a few years ago when Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton were arguing over something and Bernie said... Uh, well, in Denmark, they, they do this and this. And, and, and Hillary responded, I love Denmark, but America's never going to be Denmark. Uh, uh, is the alternative to this Randian American dream, uh, the, the, the social democratic system in Northern Europe, in Denmark, in Germany, in Sweden, is there any alternative? Could America develop a system with a uniquely American quality flavor that isn't just a replication of, of the Danish model? Well, you know, I, I have a lot of solutions in my book as well. That's it's the new American dream. That's how it ends towards the new American dream. And, um, and in my last book, Squeezed, Why Our Families Can't Afford America, you know, I argue for things that, that the tech folks really like, like EBI or uh, basic income guarantees. Uh, and in this book, I'm talking about that particularly for parents because um, the dependence that uh, and the interdependence that exists, especially with mothers and children in this country, that's not being supported by adequate daycare. As one expert said, the daycare system is a non-system. Uh, you know, that could be corrected by very limited uh, UBI for parents of uh, children, say five and under or 10. Yeah, and UBI is, of course, universal basic income. We've done many yeah. shows on that, although it seems to be Slightly less fashionable than it was. I don't it know is. Why. You know, I, part of it, I think, is because we had these child tax credits. And so there's sort of more concrete, uh, you know, during the pandemic, we had sort of more concrete versions in some ways of UBI being offered. And How so hasn't uh, some people, again, might say, well, Biden is pouring quite literally trillions of dollars into strengthening the state. Is there any truth in that? Um, is Biden yeah. creating or the Biden state, or the Biden fix, is, is that reestablishing the American dream, making it fairer? I think it, I think it definitely did. And I think, uh, well, I, I don't want to lose some of the things that we got during the pandemic. And I, I write kind of forcefully about this, partially because, again, I work with people who are on SNAP or people who get so-called entitlements, and they're my writers, right? And what I see is that they're process got much more streamlined during the pandemic because people needed the money desperately. And also there wasn't this kind of like layers of bureaucracy within the welfare state to have people recertify, which is a whole process that it takes for people to get, um, you know, welfare, SNAP and other kinds of, you know, aid. That was broken down. People didn't have to go have these interviews. They didn't have to like try to prove that they were worthy of aid. So to me, that that is something that we should applaud and try to continue things like the eviction moratoria, um, maybe not a moratoria, but that level of awareness about people's housing insecurity. And, 
But the problem is because partially, I think, because the pandemic was so traumatic for so many of us, people are trying to forget. And so they're also trying to forget the things we learned during the pandemic, the things we got out of it, the, the benefits, if you will, of it. The term American dream, I think, implies a uniqueness about America. There's no such thing as the Danish dream or the British dream or the Serbian dream or the Ugandan dream. Well, the Serbian dream, I, I don't want to. <laughs> yeah, I don't think anyone yeah, I'm not sure I want to get involved with any Serbian <laughs> dream. Um, should, do you think that Americans need to simply get rid of the notion of the American dream uh, to, to undermine its uniqueness, to suggest that it's just no different, no better, no worse than any other country? Yeah, I mean, I think we need to, again, go back to this earlier version of it, which we can, you know, if this is the dream, we need to wake up kind of thing. And what would we wake up to if we did? I mean, so I have a whole host of suggestions, but probably the the most actionable ones for the largest number of people is changing who our political leaders are. And I actually have an op-ed in the Washington Post today that articulates some of that, uh, that we now in the House of Representatives have the largest uh, number of people of color and the largest uh, number of uh, female representatives ever, I think. And that has meant that there are people who are denying, who are throwing out this Horatio Alger story and admitting, like Maxwell Frost, admitting that um, he didn't have the money to pay for an apartment in D.C. and he has to couch surf, even though he's a congressman because he came from a lower income working class background just to have those voices out there and those voices that understand and remove the shame and blame and potentially fight for things like the child tax credit, you know, that I'm, I'm discussing here or continuing um, the more lax um, process of getting uh, social services that, that was part of the pandemic. Um, I think that that's really necessary. That's one way forward. That's one way of having a new American dream. And there are plenty of others. I mean, there's, worker cooperatives. I write about, if you just name individual ones, it can seem a little bespoke, but taken together. And I try to do this. I did this in the excerpt of my book in Time Magazine, where I tried to discuss the multiple um, things that are happening at the same time, including the unionization of brain workers who have become gig workers, mm. like museum workers, publishing people, journalists. Um, that's been, uh, you know, academics. That's been interesting, right? Or people fighting for budget justice, which are the volunteer uh, citizens who work in something called participatory budgeting in something like 487 cities around the country. And okay. yeah, you can say, this sounds wonky, but like there are now dozens of these things, dozens of these ways to participate in collective communitarian. Well, what's joining, yeah, it is wonky and it, but it's important. What's yeah. joining the dots on, on all this? As you said, you had a piece this morning in the, the Post about uh, opening up American politics. My sense, Alyssa, is that your audience for this is, is not Trump or Musk or people who like uh, Alger or Ayn Rand. This is a conversation going on within the Democratic Party on the progressive left. Uh, are there people joining the dots? Uh, I don't know. As, as Bernie Sanders, of course, is, is is rather old now. Elizabeth Warren wrote, I thought, a very interesting piece about Silicon Valley Bank. Are you calling for a new kind of politics here, yeah, or a definitely. new, a new, maybe not a new political party, but a a, 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 a new uh, group within the Democratic Party? 
Yeah, and like a new bench, as it were, a new bench of uh, different kinds of people. Because right now, 51% uh, of the house is a millionaire. And that that is not illustrative of what this country looks like. You say right? that again and explain what you mean. 51% of the house, you mean of, of the Democrats house, or of, of all? Of all of them, yeah. So we have like majority millionaires in our amongst our politicians and that, that no wonder they're out of touch, right? No wonder they're not representing the economic needs of many people. You know, forget uh, poverty programs, you know, they're not necessarily recommend, you know, representing us in terms of our tax code, right? They're not Although, representing- uh, I mean, in American history, the architect of the New Deal was an enormously rich and privileged man. So it, right. is it doesn't always have fall. money and privilege and yeah, there's always a joke. The look, look at Lenin. <laughs> Whatever, every, you know, major revolutionary has come from wealth, it, it, it seems, um, or every other. So, yeah, it's not, it doesn't always follow. But um, part of what hardens me with, say, Maxwell Frost, who I mentioned, or there's a new uh, representative out in um, Washington State who ran an auto body shop and made $34,000, you know, like the, having these kind of people join our political life and and talk about it. Not like I've come up from the scrap heap and I'm making it. I'm a Horatio Alger story, but talking about it like some kind of pride at, at their background and their the humility about, you know, their background and about what it takes for a lot of Americans to survive, I think is a really important messaging for Democrats. You know, in a funny way, your, your, your book, which speaks of, I guess, a kind of crisis of the American dream is echoed and what Trump is saying. Um, what do you make of Trump um, in the context of your argument about the liberation from the dream? Is he just another show business version of Ayn Rand, or is there something more corrosive about him? Not, it's hard to be more corrosive, I guess, than Ayn Rand, but maybe in a slightly different way. Yeah, well, what's interesting is that the vulnerability, the the loss aversion, which is something people talk about, you know, the fear of losing the class status that you have, I think was a force that really drove a lot of uh, Trump supporters, not Trump himself, obviously, but, you know, they shared the same understanding of the lack of the social safety net or the how close we got, how close we were all to the edge as voters on the other side of the aisle. Their reaction to it was just totally different. And let's not beat around the bush. There's like a, a racial part of this too, right? Um, you know, there's obviously, there's part of his base that's white nationalist, et cetera. But the thing that I found really interesting when I thought about Trump and read, and I found this incredible sort of uh, study, and I talked to some of the scholars who were doing it. In 2018, they surveyed voters in the Midwest about their voting patterns. And um, it turned out that the voters... Uh, who were supporting Trump, they were Republican voters, uh, believed that he was self-made, which is something that obviously Donald Trump kind of plays into this, you know, like, ah, look at him, I'm, I can't, I'm not going to do an invitation. <laughs> I'm not a, whatever, Alec Baldwin. But yeah, so, and once they told the voters uh, that this was not true, that he's he started his business with loans from his father, that his father was a real estate businessman, Fred, Trump with millions, and um, they they found that uh, a good deal fewer of the voters said they would go ahead and vote for him, which I thought was really interesting. And again, something um, not just we should be embracing this like anti Horatio Alger story of messaging, 
but maybe we should be demystifying people who have politicians and tycoons that have fake self-made stories, that there's something of value there for ordinary citizens to have their eyes open to who the people at the top of the heap really are. Are you calling for a new populism, a progressive populism? We've had a number of people on the show arguing for populism from the left, um, Thomas Frank, for example, or yes. Michael Lind. Is that the camp you're in, in terms of reviving an American populism uh, from the ground up rather than a, an elitist, uh, technocratic fix to America's problems? I absolutely, I mean, yes. <laughs> um, I founded or sort of built up my organization with Barbara Ehrenreich, uh, author of Nickel Dimed. Yeah, and you wrote uh, a very moving um, obituary when she died last year. Um, of course, your book, in a way, is 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 the continuation of what she wrote, Nickel and Dimed, on not getting on by in America. Although, what strikes me about the world you write about is that it's m even more unequal than the one she wrote about. And when, when did Nickel and Dime come out? In the uh, yeah, two thousand one, I think. Yeah, um, so yeah, like twenty, 20 years, years ago. ago, but. I mean, how has America changed since Aaron Reich's nickel and dime? It's become even more unequal. Even more unequal. I mean, CEOs in 2021 made 399 times what their you know lowest paid employees made. I think the average CEO salary during the pandemic was like 15.6 million. <laughs> I mean, it's just like really uh, unequal when we think about what ordinary people are living on. And how 15, the fight for 15, 15 an hour is really not enough, right? But I was just going to say about Barbara is that she was very suspicious. She called it the professional managerial class. She was very suspicious of the technocratic, uh, you know, d Democrats, right? She felt like there was something, um, you know, um, yeah, the elitist, out, of the world. Out, out of touch, elitist, um, and, you know, um, very uh, also kind of conventional and have this loss aversion, right? This fear of falling that she wrote about in my favorite of her books. And that loss aversion was itself kind of toxic because that meant that they couldn't create, you know, bonds of solidarity across class lines because they were holding on to what they had, their fancy hibachi bar barbecues and their, you know, two cars. But um, I'm not sure I, I entirely agree. Like, I actually think that there's going to be a way, and this is the hopeful part, uh, of potentially having some of these PM, uh, PMC folks, professional managerial class folks, connecting across the class lines when they start to get organized, which is, again, what I was seeing with academic unions, with, you know, journalistic unions, these classic kind of middle class jobs that have now turned into hellscapes you know, in terms of, you know, job security and earning power, that those workers who never saw themselves as themselves as political subjects are now seeing themselves as political subjects, as labor subjects, and that that is itself a kind of possibility, you know. So, yeah, like I am very populist. You but don't I also... think that's a bit of a Brooklyn conceit that it, I mean, it may be true in Brooklyn. It's all Brooklyn conceit, baby. It's all Brooklyn conceit, baby. <laughs> Um, what yeah. about the role of technology? I know uh, Elon Musk um, is. Oh, I is see. Michelle uh, Meredith Broussard's new book. Yeah, I know. Yeah, her. I yes, mean, yes. Um, Elon Musk is not one of your great friends. He's another model for this. But 
we did a show with Meredith Broussard earlier, another New York-based intellectual, uh, more than a glitch, in which she's very suspicious of technology. You're also suspicious. You're quite critical of networks like GoFundMe, which yes. Silicon Valley is trying to use as a, as a sort of a networked version of the American dream. Is, is, can technology help or is it part of the problem? Um, New technology, digital it, technology. It can sometimes. I mean, I know I know your work well. Like I read your your book around about the internet um, and uh, the trouble with experts. I think it was called. Um, and cult of, I, yeah, cult of the amateur. Cult, cult of the amateur. <laughs> okay, I just um, inverted it. Okay. Although <laughs> you the, wrote a book, um, you you wrote a book in favor of amateurs. I did. Uh, I did. So, so we where? could actually. Um, I know. I think at some point people wanted us to debate. Actually. Oh, we did. Wood. Republic of Outsiders. Well, we can do one now. The the power of amateurs, dreamers, and rebels. When did you write that? I wrote that in 2014. Have you changed uh, your mind? Well, it's it. Uh, the power is there. What they've done. What we've. You know. Look at. Um, I mean. But it's become more nightmarish. I mean, you see kind of the so-called alt-right, which is hyper-organized group of political amateurs who have created, uh, you know, an immense, you know, movement, right? Uh, that's quite powerful in American life out of, you know, uh, uh, also look at the opponents of abortion who, the, who have on the had this kind of ground swell. Yeah, so I mean, I, mean, I think I, it's, a, I, it's I, like I a, it can point, be a, yeah. Can we, is, is that fair? Is that consistent? When technology is used in a way that promotes, and, and you and I are probably fairly similar in terms of our politics, but when technology promotes people um, who's, agendas, ideologies we like, we like technology. And then when it promotes people whose technologies we don't like, we don't like technology. We can't have it both ways, can we? Yeah, I mean, um, I think that that's part of the problem, right? The, the, you know, the kind of chaos of contemporary life, everything, everywhere, all at once, as it were. Um, and I don't know. Yeah, so I, I can't, I, I, I think a lot of the, the techno uh, utopians or the, uh, the GoFundMe crowd. Yeah, the te tech optimists. Um, it's really not quite right. I mean, what I call it in my book is the dystopian social safety net. And what I mean by that are things like these crowdfunding sites and probably kind of web communities where people are um, also doing other kinds of, you know, self-care, caring for each other, that as wonderful as these things can be, you know, uh, it, it, the number of medical bills that are now being paid through GoFundMe accounts are insane, right? It's like one of the biggest um, verticals, whatever, within GoFundMe is like paying strangers medical bills. And um, I, well, I that, wonder, that, no, well, um, that's out, but, but that's salutary, but uh, but it's also disturbing. Dystopian social safety net is what I call these things that shouldn't exist, but do. They do because it, we have to have them. So it's like, a, again, like the answer to that would be hopefully uh, <laughs> better medical care for people, both from, you know, employers or, you know, a lot of the plans that, you know, whatever that we've had in the past that didn't come to fruition. But um, it also, until then, we have this kind of apparatus that's helping us survive. That is a lot, a, a lot online with people that we have very loose ties with, right? Hmm. I wonder, Alyssa, finally, whether it's possible to argue that the system is breaking down, that we're in the late 
in in the twilight, if you like, of the American Republic. I mean, books have been written about this for years, of twilight of the American Republic, twilight of the American dream. But the medical system is breaking down. As you say, people are now, in order to stay alive, they're, they're, they, are, uh, they are trying to raise money on GoFundMe. People can't afford to send their kids to college anymore, even the, the middle class and the upper middle class. Do we need, and you know, speaking of Lenin, I guess, it, does the system need a real crisis? Not a, a mock crisis, but a real crisis. Is, are things really falling apart? I, my sense is that Barbara Ehrenreich thought they were, uh, and you're, uh, you're writing in her tradition. Um, can, I mean, can the system, it, it, maybe, let me revive, maybe make it a simpler question. Can the system be reformed or, or, or does it need to be profoundly changed, shaken, maybe even revolutionized? Yeah, I think it needs to be profoundly shaken and revolutionized. And I think the things that we do have control over um, are our own attitudes to our own suffering. You know, so that's that's one thing I tried to address. And and the thing that Barbara did believe was in this thing, radical happiness, that was by our mutual acquaintance. Of, she's actually. Lynn Siegel, uh, this kind of the, the possibility of joy in community and in other kinds of uh, kind of dancing in the streets, right? That was Barbara's, one of Barbara's books. And so I think like for the thing I'd like people to take from this book, in addition to, you know, these more profound calls for social change is to change their own mindset around the self-blame that they might have around their economic lives or their even their emotional vulnerability. I call it radical self-help because I think if we can start to see the problems that are structural, each one of us, we can be, again, liberated from the yoke of the self-hatred 